What's up, bootlickers? I haven't seen y'all since the camp out. I got something to say, right? Anarchy is and always has been the best way and the only morally sensible way to run the world. Cool. It's not just cool. It's the intersection of life and politics, activism and action. And there's only one way to get power. Organize all the workers together. One big union. And the war the IWW wants you to get into is class war. War against the capitalists. Come on! It's not criminal to be an individual. It's not criminal to be an individual. How could you go to a riot without me? You were supposed to be on a riot, buddy. I'm escaping to the one place that hasn't been corrupted by capitalism. Space! I was a victim, too. At least my wife was. She had friends who were socialists. Oh my god. Okay, welcome, welcome to the Three Left Show. I'm your host, Dan Platt, live here in the studio in Albany, New York. This program covers news, issues, and anything of interest from a radical and revolutionary left perspective for the curious or the committed, promoting a post-capitalist present and future via direct democracy and a commons economy, discussing the means and ends of a multi-tendency left that is of itself and for itself, the meeting point of a socialism, anarchism, and ecology. We proudly wave the flags of those three lefts. Also, three lefts make a right... And any other kinds of puns you'd like to make, please suggest more of your own. Or there are other sensible catchphrases. Okay, right into it. I want to add an addendum to last week's show, which was about transportation, a little bit of walkability and car culture kind of bashing, which I always do. Um, but mostly focusing on mass transit and, uh, and what have you, or the transportation network overall. The system. But I want to give an addendum because I ended that show on a story about uh, Birmingham in Britain about adopting the Ghent style walkability plan. You know, an actual how does a city transition off of car dependency? I think there is a gap, even in my own, that I once had of how this actually occurs. The normal thinking seems to be that we slowly, like, and this this goes with any kind of activism or, or change-making, that we just kind of do our own thing, like, we add enough bike lanes one street at a time, and eventually there'll be enough bike lanes that, and then we fight one block at a time for these things, that people will be able to bike more than drive, or that will transition a little bit at a time, slow, gradual change. But this is not how car dependency came about. This is not how we transitioned our cities to being car-based. Why do the good things in life have to take century when the transition of destroying our cities for cars and for the sake of suburbia only took 20 years? That was one of the themes from last week's episode. So I want to actually cover what, in fact, the Ghent plan was, which I think the the details in the story I read were a little scant, so I actually clicked one of the links and actually looked 
at the PowerPoint presentation of what the Ghent plan was. And it actually made me excited to promote it. Like, not just a, oh, that's nice. No, I was actually like, I'm going, I want to talk about this with people. So here's the rundown. You take a city, modestly sized city, that maybe already has a pedestrianized core, you know, downtown area. So maybe that's step one. You got to pedestrianize something. But there's also a chicken the egg aspect or a paradox of people don't want to pedestrianize anything if it isn't already like a shopping street or uh, if there's already car traffic, you know, you only pedestrianize something where people aren't really driving there already. You know, and you can't get in people's way. You can't make people upset. But you, to do the right thing, you got to make somebody upset, at least temporarily speaking. So, Ghent already had, like, a, a pedestrianized core because, like, Albany, they're a city that's, like, 600 years old. Albany is slightly younger, but similar Dutch roots. Anyway, the Ghent plan was they have a ring road that is kind of complete. It's like a, a think of a six-lane boulevard or, or, or semi-highway, but not completely, like, elevated and separated. But mostly it is. And they, and they cut the city up into zones. And, they, and this, this, it helps in their topography that, like, they're, they're a city with a lot of canals. So there are these choke points where they block car traffic at certain points, and you basically can limit neighborhood traffic to just being local traffic and cut intercity traffic. Now, this was probably mentioned in the article last time, but I didn't, couldn't explain how they did this. And they did it with basically the kind of intervention that Americans cannot even contemplate, which is to actually block car uh, movement from one neighborhood to another by switching a lot of streets to being one ways and physically blocking cars from moving say, over this bridge while making another avenue you can cross it but only by bus or bike so think if you're going to move from one side of town to the other side of town by car you're going to use the ring road and then this cuts the congestion on the streets that are within the city keeping cars to the periphery of the city or on this ring road. So it may increase congestion on the ring road or maybe not, but makes it maybe less convenient to drive if you're going to be making a short trip within the city. But instead of trying to incentivize people to get out of their cars or to use car sharing or bike sharing, which of course people can naturally pick up once you make these things available, but to make them the norm, it needs to be structurally built in. Meaning, if you're going to cross from one neighborhood to another, you're actually going to do it by bike. It's not a matter of option anymore. We've taken the option out. It is now the norm that you're going to bike around the city. Which is, of course, you know, oh, totalitarian, right? Well, it seems totalitarian now to me to say, well, if you're going to cross the city, the only safe way to do it is by car. Because I try to cross the city by bike, and I want to, if I didn't, if I wasn't already having my life threatened, I would want to kill myself with how many times I feel like my life is being threatened. Or rather, uh, because of all the car traffic that does exist, it ruins the roads. 
or the roads constantly need to be maintained. Imagine if car traffic was actually limited to only certain avenues or streets, and then those are the ones that just get repaved. You could actually afford to repave them every year or something instead of having to repave 50 or hundreds of streets. So to the to that the kind of battle that would need to be waged, um, you know, and then you know, it's I, I'm not saying this is the conversation, but to like pointed out the gradual change of like just hey, you know, a decade ago it was considered inconceivable or impractical to even minimally accommodate bicycles by putting in like when a street is completely revamped that there will be a bike rack or bike stand put in maybe in two places or that sharrows will be painted on what angers me about the sentiment is it isn't legally required that any new street when it's paved will actually have bike lanes painted on it that's not the case it's still cars first bikes are are considered basically not considered at all only on maybe main avenues but I don't want to bike on main avenues they're dangerous because the lanes are never protected American cities never want to build protected bike lanes uh, only New York City has gone so far one excuse given uh, here in Albany is that there they would be hard to plow you know assuming that you know people are going to be on their bikes in the winter which most people are not. I am. People think I'm crazy. <laughs> I would say I'm experienced. But to, to exemplify this, uh, I have the first article lined up from Vice called Walking Places is Now Part of the Culture War. Uh, subheadline, for two million years, we have walked this earth to get what we need. Now, 60% of Americans want to drive everywhere. Written by an Aaron Gordon. Uh, very recently. Approximately... Two million years after our ancestors first learned to move about the planet with an upright gant, whether or not walking places is good or bad has become yet another dividing line in the American culture war. According to a recent Pew Research Center poll that studied the issue of whether people prefer to live in places where, quoting uh, the question, schools, stores, and restaurants are within walking distance versus where they are several miles away, the biggest divide in opinion is not young versus old or urban versus rural or even education level. It is political preference, particularly the partisan binary of uh, the duopoly, Democrat and Republican. But actually, that's not true. They, um, they kind of also uh, siloed people into conservative and liberal, still an extremely simple binary, but it's pew, let's roll with it. Just 22% of conservatives want to live in walkable neighborhoods. <laughs> they don't want to walk. Uh, while 77% prefer driving everywhere. This is because it's been great in them that driving is freedom and being able to go wherever you want. I don't think being in traffic jams and dying by the hundreds of uh, tens of thousands is much is a lot of freedom to me. So it is. Uh, or or uh, giving asthma to many people. You know, one person's freedom is another person's genocide. <laughs> American... America in a nutshell. A slightly higher percentage of Republicans or people who lean Republican as a whole. About 23, uh, 26% want walkable neighborhoods. Meanwhile, 44% of moderate Democrats and 57% of liberals, this is how like they divided between, part, you know, they'd say party, but then they'll say that there's a binary within that of moderate and liberal. <laughs> um, they want walkable neighborhoods resulting in a 50-50 split among Democrats as a whole. 
So, you know, it's, it's still a majority of Americans just want to drive, uh, which just makes me angry. That gap of 35% between liberals who want to live in walkable neighborhoods and conservatives who do is larger. It's a, it's a 35% gap uh, who is larger than the gap. That's larger than the gap between those with postgraduate degrees and high school diplomas or less who want walkable neighborhoods or 18 to 29-year-olds versus the 50 to 60 Four-year-olds, the gap between those two groups was 14 and 12% respectively. The poll also shows gap between postgraduate... Oh, I, I see. They're saying that the gap between highly and lowly, low education was 14%, young and old was 12%. The poll also show, shows a 26-point gap between Asians who want walkable neighborhoods, which is 58%, more than a, majority, a small, slight majority, versus whites, which was only a third as the poll was conducted in English. So this is definitely a white person problem. You know, kill it's not about killing the people, it's about killing the idea of whiteness, which is my freedom comes first, yours last. So it gives the data in bar graph form. Not the kind of bar graph I like, but whatever. But one of the most striking findings is that the gap is in walkable neighborhood preference, according to the extreme political views, is even wider than the gap between urban and rural respondents. So even rural people who pretty much do need vehicles to get around. So where 50% of urban residents polled want walkable neighborhoods, just half, and 25% of rural ones do, in other words, whether or not you actually live in an urban or rural area is less of a predictor of whether you want walkable neighborhoods than the political beliefs. Because the gap between that was 25% versus the 35% of party. But there is still a lot of disagreement on the issue even among people who consider themselves part of the same ideological cohort. Well, because when you lump everyone between two parties, into two parties, that doesn't really show the broad political spectrum that exists in real life. Regardless, if we put the above a slightly different way, 42% of liberals prefer to live in places where they have to drive everywhere. That is a very high number for a group in the survey one would think is most concerned about climate change. Well, sure. Talk to any cable news viewer and they'll tell you just how contradictory liberals kind of are. But I'm a leftist, not a liberal. Uh, while the electric cars may help reduce emissions from cars significantly in the long run, they need to be accompanied by an equally significant reduction in how often or how far we drive. The most obvious and obtainable solution is to live in places where we can walk. It is wrong to equate the above with the idea that everyone has to live in cities. Rural towns have and continue to thrive with houses and businesses clustered around a main street or a center built around transportation to other cities. This is how much of the country looked, especially, but not only, in the Northeast and Midwest prior to the World Wars. And it is how much of, say, Europe and East Asia still look. In fact, the U.S. is one of the few places where massive suburban sprawl with mandatory, that'll come into play in the next article, single-family zoning that legally bans businesses from opening near people is the rule. Like, use segregation. It is also ironically, one of the most dra dramatic examples of modern U.S. history of government mandates interfering with the rights of property, which the conservative movement was once ideologically opposed to. Now they, well, 
It would be interesting to poll them on how they feel about inclusionary zoning, but they would say they like it when the issue is counts in terms of, well, the zoning keeps the pores away or businesses I may not like. There are all kinds of other implications from these poll result, results. Cars are expensive to buy, maintain, and living patterns that continue to rely on them are yet another financial burden on people who may not be able to afford them. So that's basically kind of a way they pull people, but they didn't pull people by class, did they? They didn't pull people by income, but by all these other metrics. Maybe they should do that. Hmm? Anyway, uh, and then also, you know, and then it follows, you know, uh, people wanted, uh, let's see, building homes is expensive. There's a general housing shortage in the country and real estate is often more of an investment than a place to live. Real estate company, thus you want prices to be high. Tend to build a large, uh, this real estate builds larger homes that they can sell at a higher price. Larger homes on larger lots, which require more space, which requires more distance between things, which require driving. Which means houses or homes keep getting bigger and bigger. Meanwhile, large detached homes, this use more, to use more energy than attached or smaller ones. Now, if the climate crisis concerns you, which it should, <laughs> this is all bad news. In the two million years since our ancestors learned to walk, we have evolved to understand and manipulate our plan in ways our predecessors quite literally could not even conceive. And yet, in some very important ways, we are going backwards. I'm not sure. We probably need to poll people every decade to be able to see where the numbers are going. Perhaps the, uh, the numbers for people who don't want walkable neighborhoods is going down, but perhaps not fast enough. I'm sure the numbers change because of policy, or they can change because of policy. There's kind of organic change when there is non-interference with the status quo. And I don't just mean from government, but from society in general. And when society acts, status quo shifts. So continuing on from the narrative of, uh, or rather the, the take about how zoning is important and zoning reinforces the status quo of driving and high uh, expensive housing and the high cost of things as well as the environmental ecological damage and, and climate chaos. From the New York Times, an opinion piece called The New Redlining is Deciding Who Lives in Your Neighborhood. If you care about social justice, you need to care about zoning, particularly because zoning laws were, were written by... um. By capitalists, basically. Capitalists and well-off white people. You know, kind of like, uh, you know, it's just it's typical leftist, you know, saying racism is baked into everything. Well, sure. You, it's, it's, maybe it's not like the prime mover. You know, money, profit is the prime mover. But it's, it's in there, too. Let's explore how. The, uh, the writing of a, a Dr. Richard uh, Kallenberg senior fellow at the Century Foundation that focuses on segregation in schools and housing, which is, if you didn't know, as bad as ever. But it's more by class, which happens to bisect with race. Housing segregation by race and class is a fountainhead of inequality in America. Yet for generations, politicians have been terrified to address the issue. And by the way, this is also reinforced by property taxes and local taxation that will come up in the next episode I do, where I'll focus more on the land reforms that should be focused on. 
This is more of a let's understand the issues here. That is why it's so significant that President Biden, and this article kind of focuses on Biden's policy, you know, policies at the moment, not that you can trust what the Biden policy will be one month to the next. Uh, but anyway, it's a proposed uh, American Jobs Act, a $5 billion race to the top competitive grants program to spur jurisdictions to eliminate exclusionary zoning and harmful land use policies. Never mind actually legislating that Cali should do this, but I guess that could be court challenged. Instead, it has to, you know, be use market mechanisms. You know, have a competition with five billion in grants as, as if that's enough. Um, I think it should just be a general any jurisdiction that uh, uh, reforms its zoning will get um, not only the money to study it, but will get extra money to implement it. Uh, which Albany has done. At the very least, the grant helped us um, study our zoning and rewrite our zoning code. A three-year three process. So our zoning is pretty much fixed, and it has led to some new developments, but of course it's all been led by uh, real estate. So anyway, Mr. Biden will reward localities that, personally, right? Uh, but um, he would reward localities that this program would reward localities that voluntarily agree to jettison minimum lot sizes, mandatory parking requirements, and prohibitions on multifamily housing. These are all nice things. Now, this man, uh, this writer doesn't use the word program, but recall in the last episode uh, when it came to the highway, building out the highway system, that there was, at first, it was a program to plan interstate highways or inner city highways. But in 10 years, it became the project of building the highway, something required, something that the state, uh, the Fed was going to fund 90%. Imagine that, but for mass transit and social housing. Only an eco-socialist Green Party government, probably, or influenced government will deliver that. Maybe. Although so zoning may seem like a technical, bureaucratic, and decidedly local question, in reality, the issue relates directly to the three themes of Biden's campaign. I'm going to skip some of these you know, Biden-centric paragraphs, but here we go. Economically discriminatory zoning policies, which say that you are not welcome in a community unless you can afford a single-family home, fewer and fewer people, sometimes on a large plot of land, are not part of a distant, disgraceful past. The most American, in most American cities, zoning laws prohibit the construction of basically any kind of affordable homes, duplexes, triplexes, quads, or any other apartment building, on three-quarters of residential land. That's the whole country, I think it's referring to. It's basically illegal to have affordable housing in America. This isn't just like a... Again, it's focusing on the zoning law, but this is because the banking sector wants it that way. So the, 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 there's a there's a bias, there's a yeah, intersection with capitalism here that I as a leftist must point out, obligated morally. That uh, a lot of the articles that I've been reading are more from a liberal or a sort of progressive perspective. Obviously, adding my own spice to it. Removing exclusionary barriers that keep millions of black and Hispanic people out of safe neighborhoods with strong schools in central, of course, what makes a neighborhood uh, safe or unsafe is not always an entirely different question. 
Over the past several decades, sociologist Orlando Patterson has noted, black people have been integrated into the nation's political life and military, but the civil rights movement failed to integrate black Americans into the private domain of American life. Meaning, uh, I guess, the American having actually having being able to obtain the American dream of the single-family house with the white picket fence. Single-family ex- exclusive zoning, which was adopted by communities shortly after the Supreme Court struck down an explicit racial zoning in 1917, which was the last time, basically, um, there was a program that paid localities to develop zoning because this was something that didn't actually exist uh, until that point. And so, of course, when they did it, they did it to the detriment of minorities and other undesirables or whatever. Not only separating uses, but people. So this is what activists called the new redlining, even though it's referring to zoning codes that were written in 1917, which uh, is about 30 years before the redlining of the New Deal era. Anyway, racial discrimination has created an enormous wealth gap. So this guy kind of states the obvious, or he states, if you didn't know, while exclusionary zoning laws are essentially harmful to black people, the discrimination is more broadly rooted in class snobbery. So it's more class than race. Of course, they intersect. A second problem Mr. Biden highlighted in his campaign. Oh, yes, he's very much a class warrior, isn't he? So the elitism of Mr. Biden promised to reject help, the promise to reject, helps explain why in virtually all white communities like La Crosse, Wisconsin, efforts to remedy economic segregation have received strong pushback from upper-income whites and why middle-class black communities have sometimes shown fierce resistance as well to low-income housing. If race were the only factor driving exclusionary zoning, one would expect to see such policies most extensively promoted in communities where racial intolerance is highest. But in fact, the most restrictive zoning is found in politically liberal cities, where racial views are more progressive. Ah, but wealth is more stratified. As Harvard's Michael Sandel has noted, social psychologists have found that highly educated elites, quote, may denounce racism and sexism, but are unapologetic about their negative attitudes of less educated people. Because since 1970, income segregation has more than doubled. Let's skip ahead. I want to move on. Talks of the work of the Century Foundation this guy writes for. Let's see. The Biden administration should go further to create what is known as a private right of action comparable to the one found in the 68 Fair Housing Act to allow victims of economically discriminatory government zoning to sue the federal uh, to sue in federal court. Because most people could sue, but they don't they say don't have standing just as victims of racial discrimination currently can, uh, but they can't on class grounds, which could be a game changer to actually be able to sue in various ways on class grounds. Could be actually a step towards class war without having to strike, what have you. But court settlements do not solve structural problems. Or can they? I guess that's a longer, larger discussion. So this Economic Fair Housing Act, which he proposes, I guess, which, uh, yes, he proposes, uh, the Equitable Housing Institute has developed into statutory language. It makes clear that state-sponsored economic discrimination is wrong, whether or not it has a racially disparate impact or not. So it doesn't, you don't have to, you don't have to play the race card. And because it is wrong, 
the law should apply in every town and state in the country. I don't really like the moralistic uh, framing of this, but what have you. Again, liberal professor. Uh, for important historical reasons, being a class knob is not held in the same disrepute as being a racist. But in the context of exclusionary zoning laws, the message of the racist and the class knob is cut from the same cloth. Black families and working class families are so degraded that the state should sponsor laws to make it illegal for anyone to build the type of housing that they can afford. As we begin to come out of a pandemic in which grocery clerks, healthcare workers, and truck drivers were recognized as everyday heroes, any kind of discrimination by the government against them must end. So what democratic egalitarianism and the liberty be free from government interference are values that are typically in tension with each other. In the case of this kind of zoning reform, they point in the same direction. Perhaps for that reason, surveys suggest uh, that it is in fact popular. 2019 data for a progress poll, for example, voters are asked, of course, what kind of voters? Frequent voters. Okay. Would you support or oppose a policy to ensure smaller, lower income homes like duplexes, townhouses, and garden apartments that can be built in middle to upper class neighborhoods? Support, so basically desegregating neighborhoods by class. Uh, supporters outnumbered opponents two to one. Of course, that's what they say in a poll, but then when the affordable housing project goes up or is proposed, I wonder if the teeth will come out. Only time will tell, perhaps. Uh, after decades of federal inaction on this issue, Congress must move boldly to embrace the country's mood to remove these barriers that divide the nation's people. So, but building... Okay, yeah, so actually, now that I've read that a second time... It wasn't actually as bad as I keep thinking it is, um, or at least because like I, I maybe I, I had this narrative in my head that it was suggesting like, look, we just have to build more, and the zoning is in the way of building more, which was kind of the narrative in here in Albany. Now, of course, we've removed barriers to exclusionary zoning. It's like we can build more apartment buildings, but as far as the market's concerned, all of these, it's not building. Uh, affordable housing. How so? Well, like I said, there's the barriers from localities and the state, but then there's the barriers from finance. Banks don't make money from affordable housing. They don't make money. They make money from market rate housing. It's market, of course. So as a leftist, any leftist will tell you, decommodifying housing is the pretty much uh, abstract goal Land reform is the policy to do that. We'll talk about land reform and such and activism towards that next time. But for now, let's discuss and explore this issue further, that just building more housing is not enough if you don't deconstruct or erode the forces of the housing market itself. The fact that housing with its inelastic demand, referring to the fact that we do, in fact, need all need shelter, shouldn't be something that we're having to bid on and find so-called price equilibrium on. That housing costs, similar to food costs, have to be subsidized in a way that anyone on any kind of income can acquire it. Can acquire a basic form of housing, I suppose. I suppose I could frame. 
So here, uh, from 48 Hills, which is a independent San Fran, San Francisco blog or outlet, Tim Raymond, Raymond? Redmond um, writes, new housing for the rich leads to more evictions for the poor. So this is referring to particular housing that's market rate. Here it is. Data from Madison, Wisconsin could have implications for efforts to force more market rate development into vulnerable San Fran neighborhoods. So he's writing from San Francisco, but the study is in Madison, Wisconsin. So it's a national story, too. So out of Madison, Wisconsin shows the building dense, amenity-rich market rate housing in vulnerable neighborhoods leads to higher evictions. So this is where it is pretty poor taste to just have a narrative of, look, we just need walkable neighborhoods. We just need to cut car dependency, right? Which is kind of where I started with this episode. But obviously, of course, that's not where all I'm at. I'm not a one-trick pony. I'm not a one-track mind. So it's not good enough to just say we need to just build density, which some urban planners or urbanist enthusiasts talk like. Like, hey, it's just good that property values are going up in certain areas because of density. And density is all that's needed because then it makes things walkable and then more livable, completely ignoring the classism or the class antagonism, who's displaced, and the, the affordability questions as well seem to be secondary, if not like, oh, it'll take care of itself. Or we'll do a government program for it. Not a project, mind you. Program, you know, incentives. We'll subsidize the, the private developers to, and so on. You know, many rich, you know, bike racks, but we'll, we'll subsidize or we'll give tax break for less parking spaces, but not for charging below market rate on rents. Anyway, uh, while there are significant differences between Madison and San Francisco, but they are metropolitan areas, the data has implications for new local attempts to encourage more dense housing into existing residential areas that may be threatened by gentrification and displacement. So the author, Professor Revel Sims, he looked at areas where five-unit or larger buildings were constructed in areas with older buildings and thus lower-income residents. Its conclusion, new housing for rich people displaces poor people. Wow! Amazing discovery. Amazing. Never would have thought it. <laughs> total surprise, right? Sarcasm detected. Sims told me that it's a totally reasonable assumption that the driving force for the evictions is rent increases by landlords and properties surrounding the new housing. It's just good to have documented proof, because otherwise, in certain in the new urbanist pages, it just goes around and around in circles. Now, this is consistent with a 2020 study from two professors in the University of Minnesota who found that new-end housing causes rent increases in nearby low-rent housing, right? Building one house here, housing, affects the market in the rest of the area, just as adding public amenities or public space also raises property values, raises rent-seeking, and thus rent-raising. So it's almost like an argument. It could be taken as an argument that nothing should be improved so that housing can be affordable. Of course, this is terrible 
reason. The conclusion to break out of the capitalist realism bubble is that, well, the bad things happen. It, if bad things happen to certain people, wink, wink, poor blacks, the poor slash the black, Hispanic minority, are these market forces. Maybe we should be removing that instead of making the argument about like density or not density, walkable, not walkable, so on and so on. So that is, if you put a lot more fancy housing in a neighborhood, rents for the other fancy housing come down, but rents for lower cost housing go up. Ah, so this, this goes into the argument of like, look, we just like, if a housing costs too much, you just have to build more housing. We need more supply. Ah, but raising supply in market rate housing does in fact lower the cost of market rate, other market rate housing, but not of other housing that's lower cost because, well, that's market rate too. It's raising what the market rate is. Interesting. So I guess market rate isn't the right luxury, upper class housing is the right category to put it in. So this shouldn't come to as a surprise, even to people who believe that the free market will solve all of our housing problems. Now, of course, so you ask them, what about poor people? What about homelessness? And they kind of maybe look at you like you have two heads and go, what about it? We have, we have nonprofits for that. We have churches. We have largesse. We have welfare for, to take care of that. Papers over the problem. Simply put, rich people, yeah, change what is natural of a neighborhood. And lower landlords see the opportunities in gentrifying areas to charge higher rents. It's also consistent with what Johann Freemark, a doctoral student in Chicago, found. And this isn't because, like, say, people's incomes go up, but like, oh, I can, since other people with higher incomes are moving into this area, I can attract, or now I can charge a standard of rent that higher incomes can afford, and thus I'll attract higher income tenants. But of course, if everyone does this because everyone's being some rational actor in a marketplace, where are people of lower income supposed to live? It's not like property owners collecting more rent raises all boats, unless it's assumed that these, well, property landlords are starting more businesses or... Or no, no, it's through their, uh, that's trickle-down economics, right? They make more profits. They're investing these profits in other businesses or spending it among other businesses. But guess what? Service, worker rent, uh, wages don't go up just because people are spending more. They don't. Because that's not actually how anything works. So it's also consistent. So this, this finding is also consistent with a Johann Freemark, what he found. The amenity effect refers to how the construction of new housing creates spillover effects that could increase demand to live in the surrounding neighborhood. Examples of amenity spillover include new restaurants, entertainment, streetscapes, uh, perceived desirability, like perceived crime rates. Uh, depending on the relative mar magnitude of the amenity effect compared to local supply, new construction could theoretically result in higher rents for the surrounding neighborhood. So Sims takes that theory and applies it to actual evictions and displacement. 
He told me that proponents of the filtering theory, filtering is in scare quotes, they argue that any type of new housing will eventually lead to more affordability. But that's a long-term process, possibly decades. And in the meantime, existing residents can be made losers or are made losers. The moral issue, he said, is why are we doing housing affordability on the backs of poor people who are forced to move out now for possible future lower rents? Filtering may take generations. How can we justify this? A liberal being in power or being on the city council doesn't... Well, the ugly truth is they don't have to justify it. They, 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 they wave their hand to everyone who is satisfied and say, well... They're the voters. They're the ones who voted me in. I don't have to care. That's where political organizing comes in, folks. Anyway, so there are some important differences between Madison and San Francisco, starting with Wisconsin's statewide ban on rent control. Tenants in Madison and many other cities can face huge rent increases anytime a lease ends. So the other two... Um, Social scientists quote a tenant in Minnesota who makes the point. My landlord does nothing to improve this three-bedroom apartment we've been living in for seven years, but every year he raises the rent. This year he tried to raise it twice in a year. I asked him why he was raising it without doing anything, as if such a question holds him accountable. <laughs> uh, he replied, have you seen what apartments are going for on Craigslist? <laughs> so basically... He was just saying, because I can. This is a quote from the Tenants Together, Tenants Voices Project. San Francisco rents are controlled as long as a tenant remains in their unit, which, of course, has a very limited, uh, limiting effect on, on, on the effectiveness of rent control. Because basically, as maybe explained in previous time, landlords can do a lot of things to make life miserable for tenants to make them move out, because as long as they're there, the rent's controlled. And then as soon as they do move out, up the rent goes. The city also has eviction protections that limit how landlords can toss their tenants out. I'm oh, sorry, referring to San Francisco. Limited land, uh, rent control and some eviction protections. But the reality on the ground is that as long as the Ellis Act is in place and the cost of Hawkins Act prevents effective rent control, San Francisco tenants are constantly vulnerable to evictions. Just look at the data. It's stunning. Between 94 and 2002, about 5,300 households were displaced for no fault of their own by speculators using the Ellis Act. Doesn't seem to explain the Ellis Act, but if you live in San Francisco, you probably know what it is. Let's see. Supervisor Raphael Mendelman is the latest to push for more dense housing. In his proposal, fourplexes in every neighborhood zoned for single-family housing. Sims told me that his cutoff at five units was just based on how data was collected. So nothing in Sim's study addresses the impact of building fourplexes or higher denser, denser housing in neighborhoods that are largely owner-occupied with wealthy residents who aren't at risk of losing their homes. Allowing denser houses in, for example, the neighborhoods of San Francis Wood or Seacliff isn't likely to lead to any displacement. These must be the ritzy places where everything is detached housing. So far, Mendelman's measure doesn't require that any of the new four units be affordable, as John Eldenberg, so he's going for the filtering effect theory, which is kind of reminds me of broken windows and trickle-down economics. 
So far, uh, let's see. Yes, his measure doesn't require that any of the new four units be affordable. As John Ellering, CEO of affordable housing developer Todico, notes on Facebook, Unless an affordable unit is required, this legislation will make all home lots where it can be used more valuable right away. And that will make any house that now costs more to buy immediately. SF needs more affordable homes, not higher home prices. Require that one new unit must be affordable for middle-income home buyers. Of course, what about low-income home buyers? Forget it. Let's just... Because affordable housing used as a buzzword, just refers to affordable to someone with a middle-class income, let alone a working-class income. That will offset the land value caused price increase that will result without it. Developers will still make a profit, because we can't hurt that, of course. They take a one-time fee from the project financing, but speculating, speculating flippers won't. San Francisco is already the third densest urban area in the U.S., but it's fine to talk about increasing density in some parts. It's not fine to do it, as some suggest, on the backs of existing populations. Vulnerable or otherwise, I would say, but vulnerable especially. <laughs> yeah. I keep asking our representatives in Sacramento and the real estate industry that gives them money, who want to impose new housing mandates on cities? Why are there no new tenant protections in the package? Why do you want to force new market rate housing into vulnerable communities without first giving cities the tools to protect them? Why not repeal the Ellis Act and Costa Hawkins and then, and only then, talk about new urban housing mandates? You know, mandating, densifying, and so on. Why? Because the real estate industry won't go for it. And nobody in power in Sacramento, including the governor, has shown the leadership to take on that industry. So, displacement now for a dubious, more affordable future. I don't buy the argument, Sims told me. If we want to build affordable housing, why don't we build affordable housing? Well, these questions are, once you get some leftist theory in your bag, or your mindscape, these questions are unnecessary. You know exactly why. Because it doesn't fit capitalism's paradigm. It doesn't fit the system doesn't make uh nobody particularly makes a profit it simply makes life more livable for more and more people so amazingly i'm scuttling through my articles you could say i'm burning through them right now let's see i do have notes i can work off of so i want to go over the theme that regulation overall is a tool it's only a tool for mitigating the negative effects of what the market, market capitalist, capitalist markets do. Radical reforms or land reforms, housing reform, the building of social housing, these cut through and actually are a solution to these problems instead of just mitigating negative effects. But they are. More trans they are not just more, but they are, in fact, transformative. That's what we need to be thinking about. Transformation, change, and not just more of the same. I think I'll end the hour by referencing the book I've just started. I finished a book about Albany history from a kind of layman person's perspective. 
Now I'm reading kind of a book that's generally a study about our political machine for most of the 20th century and definitely existed during the time that Albany, like many, any, like when every other city in America transitioned to being car-based, car-dependent. And it mentions kind of the effect that you can keep pointing out how corrupt things are, whether it's certain politicians and their scandals. But this has the effect of, like the opposite effect of, of getting, wanting people, motivating people to get rid of them. Because the effect seems to be, at least in the minds of most, proving the point that all politicians and all politics is corruptible, that it's all going to be corrupt. So your best, best to keep the scoundrel you know, and especially since, well, sure, they're, they're, they're corrupt, but they haven't done anything to screw me over yet. So we might as well keep them in. As long as kleptocracy or the corrupt don't, as long as they keep like a 51% help rate versus harm rate, that seems to be all it takes to, to win in a demo American democracy. Political machines lived and died by doing favors, especially before the New Deal, where political machines, party-based favors by your ward leader, was, was welfare. You know, it was how welfare was distributed. You didn't have government jobs programs, but through the political machine they would help you get a job. So in the postmodern era, to kind of de-pardon, you know, we've depoliticized, the, the, the effort has been to depoliticize so much of government programming so that, and they've done this by basically handing it to the nonprofit sector. The nonprofit will help you get a job, not the city, not the government. But the government will pay this nonprofit to, uh, via grants or other types of funding to do the things that, you know, it, it, uh, on the one hand, on the other hand, kind of dialogue I could have. So, like, on the one hand, you do want to decentralize. You don't want a big state doing all of these things. Why not hand it to community organizations led by, you know, community activists, the mayors of a street? You know, my grandfather was called the mayor of Young Avenue, uh, the street that my dad grew up on in Yonkers. The street that I'm on, Grand Street, has a mayor. His name is Abdul. And, you know, people who, community organizers, and they run organizations that, that get grants that from the state, so it's still government funding, but it is a bit more in community control. But it's also so decentralized. Wow. And, 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 and this would all be good, but why not do the whole economy like this? All right. So it isn't big, bad government. But through government facilitation, community orgs do everything. The economics, the planning, the, the welfare. You have to question. And this is like a question that gets you on the road to you know, revolutionary leftism like me. Why do we need a private sector? It's not for enterprise. Obviously, you don't need private finance to do the kinds of community support and business, commerce, to organize with people. Only start a business because maybe you need a bank loan, but it doesn't have to be from a private bank loan. That's the point. 
That's the point of Life Tips to say that it doesn't have to be private. It doesn't have to be for profit. It could be a community org. So that's like on, on the one hand. So on the other hand, the Great Society didn't really go that far because, well, like the New Deal itself, it was a way of maintaining capitalism. It wasn't a way of transforming it. Only of transforming maybe the local politics from machines to something a bit more nonpartisan. Even though cities will still be dominated by a single party and all that other junk. Okay, so on to the next hour. So uh, thanks for listening to the first half. I'll join you in the second half well, where I'll continue uh, this talk of uh, urbanism and gentrification, uh, something about uh, decommodifying without continuing the racist legacy of the New Deal era and the Great Society, and a little bit more on the construction industry from an architect's point of view. Miles of fire I'm losing ground And in the flesh My world comes crashing down I'm left in nowhere No place to
Okay, welcome back to the second hour of the Three Left Show. I'm your host, Dan Platt. So, next on the docket in the urbanism topic is an opinion piece from, this time, Philadelphia, from San Francisco to the west, uh, to the east coast, uh, via the PBS station uh, WHYY, so why, uh, but also a blog called Plan Philly. And the headline is, Is Urbanism a Fantasy of Racialized Capitalism? So this is about interrogating the term urbanism itself. In school, because I went to architecture school, we would use urbanism in these ways. We would kind of use it refer- talking about, we'd also use the phrase the built environment when talking about architecture, but also cities and rural areas themselves. You know, we, we, we speak of the built environment of an area. Why? Because, well, Cities are not anti-environment. They're not the negation of it. They are an environment. And we need to talk about that. When ur- when talking of urbanism, we talk of the livability of a place. You know, when uh, what, is this good urbanism or bad? You know, and what defines good urbanism is its quality of life, its livability, its walkability. Uh, it's less dependent on machines and technology and more about just humanism. And uh, in the existence of a civic life. Uh, bad urbanism has no space for civic life. You may have freedom of speech, but maybe uh, most of that speech is online because there's no public square, only private spaces that uh, very much so can limit your uh, speech. Uh, so this is from the Eyes on the Street section. So let's see, written by, oh yeah, by Nick Esposito. So he's always had a fraught relationship with the word. The first time I heard the term was five years ago, when I first became president of my neighborhood association and a commenter on an online group touted my election as one of the few new young urbanists taking over neighborhood associations. I had never heard the term before and had no idea what he was talking about. What profile did I fit that someone would assume that I'm an urbanist? So to... uh, First step is looking at the dictionary. Oxford defines urbanist as an advocate of or expert in city planning, which is a terrible definition. I mean, uh, yeah, because it's just assuming any kind of planning is good planning or leads to good outcomes. There's a specific kind of vision and criteria of effects that you want from the planning but can also occur from activism and community organizing. This definition makes a false equivalency. So so he's kind of starting from like a bad place there. It's like poisoning the well almost. And by the way, this guy's politics are similar to mine. Let's see. So this, de- this definition makes a false equivalency between an advocate and an expert. Certainly not the same thing. But what it more deeply implies is that by identifying as an urbanist, you somehow know what's good for other communities, which you are not part of. This is the exact mindset that derives white supremacy and has driven flawed city planning policies such as urban renewal and broken windows policing. Now, that's a fair conclusion, but it's from a false premise. This definition sucks. 
my definition from school is a little more comprehensive and nuanced, which is an advocate for good urbanism, which includes community control of policy planning. Uh, it could it includes a more socially aware housing. It includes walkability and, and all kinds of environmental, social, and other types of concerns. Certain apart from finance and profit making. Yeah, so just sticking it to city planning is, is obviously where it goes wrong. And as this guy leans anarchist, I assume, I think he he, he has some tells, he, he would not be for that. And thus, you know, because city planning does, in fact, have a history uh, of white supremacy, as I covered. Segregation, keeping poor black people out of certain areas. Pretty quickly, my unease was compounded as I read the commentary in Philly's urbanist online groups. It's hard to imagine at this stage of social media to be shocked by the way people present when online. Surprise, surprise. But the urbanist commentator's mix of viciousness masked by intellectualism still shocked me. Often, there was also an underlying current of racism among these commenters that had the feel of, why can't those people just understand how I do things better? So I suppose the Oxford definition is useful or at least uh, accurate when talking about online urbanism in these Facebook groups. Mostly people who are actually, yes, maybe advocates for city planning, but not experts. They're not read up on anything. They don't know what's good or bad whether or not for us. They, they just seem to have the position that they know best. But do they have any of the knowledge, evidence, or reasoning to back that up? From what my knowledge of uh, the time I, spe I spend, uh, very little, uh, very, a shrinking amount, uh, in engaging with urbanist conversations uh, in Facebook, non-impressive at all. I'm, as in, I'm impressed as this guy is. Uh, and, he, and he's right in that regard of uh, what the racism and the viciousness that's there and, and, the ra and the classism and the snobbery, whatever you want to call it. In the wake of George Floyd's, and so, you know, he puts it in the BLM context because this guy is coming at things from a social justice perspective. In the wake of George Floyd's killing under the knee of a police officer, urbanism has faced its own racial justice movement with black urban planners and white urbanists calling for an anti-racist reframe. But what if urbanism itself is perpetuating systemic racism? Urbanism as its practice, you could say. Because it doesn't include the community activism and the, and the bottom-up politics that I advocate for. But in school, I had more left-leaning professors. Some were literal leftists. They could talk about these things in a way that no one online ever does. And it's the way I talk about them, which is why when I do more Twitch streams, I'm going to be covering more architecture and urbanism content um, that I will do uh, separately. More of, as time goes on, I suppose. I did a few in the spring, and I stopped in uh, the... One example I see play out in Philadelphia... Urbanism's steadfast belief that every main corridor of a city should be made in the image of Jane Jacobs' sidewalk ballet. The thing is, most people in Philly don't live in neighborhoods anything like Lower Manhattan. The insistence that every neighborhood needs a commercial main street, 
but lies an important fact. Many communities can't financially afford to support miles of commerce. Although this kind of also reads like someone who hasn't read Jane Jacobs or at least even the Cliff Notes version where it's not about supporting a mile of a commercial corridor, but like a block of it. Good urbanism doesn't have to be like a long main street that's a mile long. It could just be corner stores. That's more from Pattern Language, one of my other favorite books, I suppose. To me, it's a white capitalist vision of what a commercial corridor should look like. A store awning, canopy, large windows with a repetitive formula, boutique cafe bar, then boutique artisan market restaurant. So what happens? Some avenues get James Beard award-winning restaurants and hipster bars punctuated by metal-paneled vanilla boxes with four rent signs in the window, while others can only support a few dollar stores. Maybe a grocer, maybe some pizza shops. Half of them still sit vacant with boards in the windows rather than real estate signs. This dark divide strikes me every time I cross Lay Avenue at Frankfurt Avenue in my own neighborhood. This is East Kensington side. There is a food co-op and a community bookstore, which he's connected to. He's a co-op member and a part of the organization that runs the bookstore. While we have incredible support from our immediate neighborhood in East Kensington, we still need to hustle really hard to attract enough foot traffic from Fishtown, where larger amounts of wealth can support a larger amount of shops. Cross lay and you find a commercial corridor that is really in really rough shape and grappling with the opioid epidemic. Vacant storefronts far outnumber active ones. Urbanists hold on to this mindset that one day, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, maybe not even in 20 years, but the generational change mentioned in the previous article, that this will be a bustling commercial corridor. What doesn't get much airplay, the voices of the people who have to live amid the empty commercial spaces, you know, the blight. What about now? But this mindset also doesn't take into consideration is that you can have other kinds of vibrancy that do not have to rely on shopping. And this is something that frustrates me to no end when it comes to, you know, city policy and, and uh, these urbanists, you know, because uh, yeah, he's right. They do frame everything as far as can people make money? Because obviously then people are making a living in the marketplace. But that shouldn't be really, we shouldn't have to depend on that. Just, just as like, I shouldn't have to depend on making money for capitalists to live. That's wage slavery, not freedom. Urban agriculture and community gardens are a perfect example. What better way to get food on a commercial corridor than having it freshly picked and usually provided at low to no cost as most gardens operate? Now, once again, as someone who manages a community farm, I know what it's like to fight hard for 12 years to preserve a garden. While people love gardens in theory, when it's the choice between the long-term community stability of a garden or urban farm or the short-term tax and possible economic benefit of commercial space, it's usually the commercial space that wins out. Profits over people. And thus, communities that we depend on to avoid becoming incel, grifter, maniacs, are more a mere dream. I remember being part of the zoning debate in 2015 to make market gardens and community gardens a use under the commercial zoning category. He just mentions this fight. He doesn't mention how it went, I guess. But 
Oh, yeah, I, I guess I suppose the assumption is it succeeded because you've been doing the garden for 12 years. So, yeah, he's, he's just not, he's not writing a paper here he's, or a book. He's just writing an essay here. But instead of truly fighting for those sorts of amenities, urbanists too often focus on wonky debates at zoning meetings and on urbanist forums about how many units of housing there should be or if there's adequate commercial floor space on the ground floor of a CMX2 building, referring to commercial zoning. Too often arguing against variances that would change use on commercial corridors while ignoring, as an afterthought, how the development was sidelining as an afterthought, how the development could benefit all community members, especially anyone of color. Currently, the city has an incredible opportunity to make the vision of increasing urban agriculture through the city with the forthcoming Urban Ag Plan. So that's he's putting in what he's working on. As that plan unfolds, I would task any self-proclaimed urbanist to see how they can be an ally in that plan and really examine their position should they feel compelled to lobby against it if it conflicts with the capitalist vision of what a commercial corridor should be. Amina Yasmin wrote in her piece, Whose Streets? Black Streets, that urban planners need to interrogate whether the profession or has value if it fails to protect the public interest by not analyzing the historic and current manifestations of racism, class, and so on. Or classism, or the racism that pervades planning. This is something I certainly did as a student. If urbanists are able to influence policy, uh, because basically, you know, it's not including the definition, but like the public good, um, what was the phrase? Yeah, the public interest is the interest of planners. You know, urbanism is about putting the public interest first over private interest. And this is why there's this tension, like uh, on urbanist pages, between the left-leaning and the liberals. That left-leaner, like, this is about the public interest. Everyone here should be, like, at least a Bernie Krat. Why are there so many, like, capitalist apologists here saying, like, oh, people need to make profits. Oh, we can't, like, decommodify housing. Like, but that's in the public interest. That's what urbanism, at least as far as the definition that we usually hold to, is all about. And then it's about arguing what's in the public interest. And, of course, as any liberal or, you know, to the right argue that it is in the public interest for some people to make as much money as possible and leave people uh, working class and minorities to their fate. So if urbanists are able to influence policy and political decisions on the city level, then they owe it to, our, but of course they're not organized in any way, So unless they are professionals. But that's a very small amount of people. But anyway, if they are able to influence anything, then they owe it to our entire community to completely reevaluate what urbanism is and how its brand of intellectualism, policy, and design really just puts a nice aesthetic on a ra- otherwise racist system. So this guy, uh, Nick Esperato, is a writer, publisher, community activist, urban farmer, and a circular economy professional. I, want, I, could, put some of them, I could put some of those titles on my business card. Nick has served as the city of Philadelphia's zero waste and litter director. So he did have like an actual public post. And this East Kensington Neighbors Association president. He is quite literally a neighborhood leader. He is currently a circular economy consultant. Again, I could do that too and put it on my business card, but I don't have been hired to do it. So 
but he's also the board president of the nonprofit bookstore and publishing company, The Head and Hand, and a co-manager at the what is called the Emerald Street Community Farm in Kensington. So that's what he does. So let's run through the last two articles I got. One is from an outlet called Shelter Force, the original voice in community development. And, okay, good. That's just, I, I just had to review my notes to remind myself what parts of this I want to skip so I'm not running too long with it. But it's basically an article about, it's about the title is Decommodifying Housing Without Reproducing American Apartheid. This is referring to, as pre- previous articles mentioned, the segregation that occurs through the zoning code and banking practices and so on. So essentially, like, okay, we can go for social housing, but how do we make sure that the race, racism, whether it's implicit or structural, isn't still having its effect? But he actually starts on a really positive note that most uh, housing work or people working on housing justice issues are moving towards a social housing platform. So through the idea of social housing is gaining traction among advocates and policy experts, the path of least resistance for its production in the U.S. is also the path perpetuating racial segregation. You know, because we could build all this new social housing, land banks, not land banks, but uh, land trusts and stuff, but it still may shake out as being black neighborhoods here and non-black neighborhoods here. So it goes through the history of some of that happening, exclusionary zoning, um, the redlining in the New Deal era, the destruction of public housing in the 70s through uh, death through a million cut, a thousand cuts. Let's see. The ironies of housing justice work in 2018 is that while a deeply hostile and incompetent federal administration plots the destruction of the housing safety net, the range of what is politically possible has actually moved sharply to the left. So as it increasingly influences housing policy, this turn is apt to cause no small amount of agita among civil rights advocates who have long fought to remedy the continuing effects of deliberate residential racial segregation. After all, federally sponsored racism permeated public housing with regard to its occupants, location, and maintenance. Although residents managed to forge strong communities, much of what public housing authorities across the country produced in the wake of the Housing Act of 49, they isolated residents from decent jobs, quality education, basic health, and so on. Uh, Why then would the society want to recreate this by, say, going back to building social housing, public housing again? The answer should be that it would be different this time around, in producing social housing that honors the fundamental right of all to a decent home. We will also respect the fundamental rights to education, health, and safety, though currently none of our governments are doing that. There is, however, a substantial risk of those being empty words as the path of least resistance um, will thus is likely to reproduce all of that. At the same time, by understanding the reasons for this, we can maybe sidestep them. So he outlines why the path of least resistance would lead to more segregation or the same amount. First is location of develop, developmental land. You know, where would you build new, low-cost, affordable housing? 
Well, common sense, land within the developed portions of a metropolitan region fall into disuse. The undeveloped green fields at the periphery, so transportation costs would thus go up. The formal type of land, which can be, it could be industrial, brownfield sites, near low-income communities of color. So anyway, formerly industrial land is often located in close proximity to logical infrastructure and had lax zoning requirements for residential land in particular, deliberate underinvestment in maintenance by absentee property owners and other discriminatory practices have played significant roles in increasing vacancy. By contrast, with some exceptions, green fields are more likely to be located in predominantly white areas, but prioritizing development in those areas often has ecological implications. Areas with brownfields and housing that has deteriorated as a result of disinvestment offer some trade-offs with respect to access to opportunity. On the one hand, access to high-performing schools and healthy environments is thus limited. On the other, proximity to job centers is sometimes greater, transit access may be better. So availability of developmental land is inner cities, places that are already blighted. But why are they blighted? Because they're over-polluted, because they're not near uh, good jobs, and so on. Second is the cost of the land. Where is the cheapest land? So controlling for current zoning regs, land tends to be most expensive in affluent white areas. There are partial exceptions to this norm in cities undergoing rapid gentrification, but any strategy that foster residential racial integration and decommodified housing will need to account for this obstacle. Patterns in ownership of land by public entities, you know, almost requiring de facto home ownership. Certain nonprofit organizations and religious uh, institutions exasperate this. In comparison to suburban municipalities, big city local governments are more likely to own land and to own it for quite a variety of reasons. Meaning, the cheaper land or the land that you could build social housing on will be in urban areas, thus perpetuating ghettos. That's the point of these paragraphs. Another factor is the political will fueled by racism. It should come to no surprise that affluent, predominantly white suburban communities are less likely to be supportive of the produce, production of any social housing within their boundaries. Opposition occurring even when big cities tend to be concentrated in affluent, predominated white neighborhoods. To the extent that it influences government actors, this predictable opposition has adverse implications for the donation of public land, its zoning, and its approval. Even if local politicians accept the case for social housing, producing it, community opponents may have an effective veto over some bond financing necessary. Identifying and exploring gaps in exclusionary structures. So the, for, the foregoing case for why building decommodified housing in low-income communities of color is the path of least resistance is a bit of a straw man, and intentionally so. Closer scrutiny reveals that for each of the problems above, affordable land, racially motivated community opposition, they're either, and by the way, it may not be racially, they may not say, oh, look, I'm not racist, but I don't want those smelly poor people around me. It becomes class motivated, easily. Understanding these problems can drive the field to engage in the creative, visionary thinking needed to avoid the reproduction of segregation. So what are the kind of sidesteps that this writer proposes? So, with respect to availability of develop, developable land, the overview above does not address how certain 
extent land uses are then concentrated in suburbs. That various land uses in white suburbs are becoming obsolete, referring to malls. About a quarter of all malls will be closed by 2022. These shopping centers are spread across suburban areas, and although it may be reasonable to expect closures to hit diverse inner ring suburbs, the hardest the shuttering of some malls historically exclusionary areas across many metropoles. It's near, it's near inevitable. So additionally, among malls, there may be able to survive the proliferation of e-commerce. Many are undergoing dramatic renovations among the town center model. That's if Amazon doesn't buy up the malls first to use as distribution centers, which they have done a few times now. So this invites the inclusion of housing as part of the new urbanist-inspired drive to create walkable mixed-use communities. Ah, so now we have the phrase new urbanist. And, but of course, ur all urbanism is at the moment new urbanism. Because new urbanism just sets itself apart from the urbanism of car culture. The urbanism of the mid-century. The, the urbanism set out by the racist zoning codes, or the zoning codes that prioritized single detached housing, separation of uses, and, and so on. So just talking about like mall conversions, it's not just converting the actual massing of a mall. If, say, the mall is dilapidated and falling apart, you demolish the mall, but you have all that land with utilities there to build apartment buildings on. So building social housing, you know, the towers in the park, let's say, building it there in a suburban area that would probably be on transit lines, breaking the ghetto. So that there, there's like that point there. So the other is, um, the other example of kind of developmental land to use that's in suburbs is golf courses. Another thing that's actually declining. Blame millennials for killing another thing. There will be a closure of a significant number of golf courses across metropolitan re regions in upcoming years. According to a study by Pelicoid Corp., an industry group, there was an over 30% reduction in the number of regular golfers between 2002 and 2016. To an even greater extent than the respect to shopping malls, golf courses are concentrated in suburban areas. These broad swaths of land present an opportunity for decommodified housing production. So that's the phrase repeated over and over again. That just means building public housing, to roughly translate. Um, but it doesn't have to be, the public, public housing means state-owned housing. But it doesn't have to be state-owned housing. It just has to be non-capitalist housing, social housing, owned by a, uh, a land trust or a non-profit-built uh, housing. Now, a final, more controversial source of land that could be developed is in uh, consists of the ubiquitous subdivisions that line these communities. Nassau County, New York, is one of the foundational proving grounds for residential racial segregation in the U.S. Uh, the town of Oyster, Oyster Bay includes the most exclusionary areas, where roughly two thirds of the housing units were built prior to 1960, and only one in 13 have been built since 1990. So there has not been any new housing and thus new residents. So older housing units in Oyster Bay tend to be relatively poorly constructed post-World War II homes. 
Although homeowners in places like Oyster Bay may have greater access to affordable home equity and refinance loans, there is very little architectural significance or expectation of high future demand that would prevent the reuse of this land. I'm not sure I get the point of that paragraph. Because he's, he's, I guess he's saying that because it's older housing stock, it would be cheaper. And, uh, and it's older housing that's probably not built well, so you might as well, like, we could requisition this. <laughs> and then, um, of course, for cost control, government subsidy or government as an active partner um, makes cost containment a little more feasible. Um, you know, mass buying, the not problem. I mean, it uses the economics of scale to keep uh, to lower costs. You know, instead of 100 nonprofits building social housing, the costs will just will be too much. But in, the, in their case, government grants are already paying for a good amount of it. Let's see. Additionally, proponents of social housing production can advocate for policies that return land use regulatory authority in suburbs to the local le- from the local level to the state. So what he means by government, government as an active partner, he kind of points out, like, to get around the implicit racism or classism, actually, let's take zoning and planning out of local hands. Definitely not like favorable to anarchists, um, but it's, it's, I think it's, it's a conversation that um, on various leftist tendencies we should be having, where as far as transition occurs in doing social policy, in any kind of policy, what level is the most effective? There's always kind of a American need for things to be on the local level. But we wouldn't have ended segregation without federal law, uh, or ended slavery for that matter. And that's like the typical American debate of states' rights versus federal control, right? Now, in this case, he's not talking about federal and state. He's talking about state and locals, which is, but it's a similar, very, very similar debate. And if local municipalities are the obstacles to good urban policy, and I'm not just talking about housing prices here. I'm talking about ecological flood planning. You leave flood planning up to localities, you get the results that occurred the last few weeks with Hurricane Ida. Every town floods on the East Coast because it's been left up to them to figure out what their flood plan, what the plan is, what their flood mitigation is. But guess what? Rivers are not limited to one municipality, watersheds, cover whole states, or half of a state. So it should be on the state level, and it is. As far as New York is concerned, it's uh, the De- uh, Department of Environmental Conservation that concerns you know water management and that kind of stuff. And, and, and then divvies up the grants for municipalities to do mud, uh, flood mitigation stuff, which is state level. The same goes for, like, food planning and ecological and transportation planning. These are all, like, regional things. There really is a... the regional bodies in my area, but there is no regional governance, which concerns me. That, like, we can make these regional plans, but we really don't have the authorities to, to implement them. Because otherwise, how do these 
how would regional governance be funded unless there's some kind of the ability to tax across multiple counties? Not, not all the counties in New York, but the five that make up the capital district. That's a question that is not brought up in any kind of public debate or election campaign or whatever. Because it's not something that, like, as far as business communities or even on the ground communities are concerned, something that, like, has to be done for a particular interest group. We're not thinking that big yet. Uh, but some are. But only professionals are. So the stack though the extent that this is realistic prospect will vary by state. It is hard to imagine state legislators that purposely preempted local inclusionary zoning like Tennessee or Indiana that forward affirmative legislation to undercut exclusionary zoning. At the same time, in order to over- overcome tax and expenditure limits that would prevent municipalities from adequately funding social housing and to beat back attempts by the real estate industry to stymie these efforts, Advocates will inevitably have to build power that can be exercised in currently unfriendly states and governors' mansions. Might just need an independent socialist party. Although it is difficult to imagine with the current administration in Congress, the federal government can also play a role. So there we go. Uh, So talks about confronting racism with hard and soft power, and I will leave that to the rest of you, enterprising listeners, to read the rest. It's a bit longer. It's like almost a whole paper here. So more about I'll just skip ahead to the last paragraphs, talking about how you know a study where you know more green space, uh, converting vacant uh, green uh, lots into green space improves mental health. In the best case scenario, reducing the pressures that would tend to undercut the accrual of these types of benefits can be the result of prioritizing racial integration as a goal in social housing programs. Social housing should be the future of housing in the U.S. True racial and economic justice depend on it. At the same time, the past track record of public housing in the U.S. has been one of stark racial segregation that has far-reaching negative consequences. There is a substantial risk that contemporary social housing efforts will reproduce these outcomes, but there are several windows of opportunity for orienting the production of it towards one of integration as a core value. Doing so should enhance the long-term sustainability of social housing efforts and maximize the benefits for everybody, but particularly the marginalized, the low income. So in the last uh, waning 10 minutes of the show, I will now cover once again, by once again, I mean, I actually did a lot of these articles before, but I had to cut the program uh, because of uh, audio technical issues here in the studio. It's from Drew Hugger. And it's from a professional, an architect who does most of his work in Europe. And the title is America's Architecture and Construction Industry is Broken. Now, he's not really talking about costs or whatever. Now, to me, what's broken is the financing. You know, private financing system, banking, BlackRock, the ownership structures and all that stuff. All things that are completely valid to talk about and consider. Uh, And this is a professional it was kind of his own world, and it's a world where Europe has all of these better products, building practices and such, that America doesn't. And the theme, or the reason underlying it, is that regulations are a tool, and it really depends on who is writing them. And in America, it has been the construction industry 
or real estate that has written the regulations. It's been for their benefit and not that of the renter or the average Joe. Now, he is framing it as a designer and ranting about it in that way. And he works mostly in German-speaking countries, Austria and Germany. So he asked the question, is the United States incapable of rising to the compounding housing and climate crises? I would say as it currently is, it is not. Or, or rather, it is incapable. So his name is Michael Ellison, and it was fact-checked by Haley Mast, published spring of this year. Having worked as an architect in both Germany and the U.S., I have grown to believe that the architect construction industry in North America, especially the U.S., is broken. It seems there is no longer room for innovation or experimentation. Now, construction costs, one of the highest in the world for some of the lowest quality, should seemingly induce some sort of innovation on cost saving, yet they do not. Our building codes are overly restrictive, stifling incredible solutions found in other countries. Our narrow procurement processes do not lead to the abundance of innovation or high-performance buildings. Now, he's naming a bunch of things that are to the benefit of the users of buildings. Masses of people. Keeping costs high and, the you know, saying like, like he starts with like a whole big regulation, big government, too many regulations. You have to ask who benefits. It's not the public will and it's definitely not politicians so much as the real estate and construction industries that he, he actually does properly blame. As they're the ones making bank. They're fine. They obviously have no incentive, it seems, to change any of these over-regulated uh, things, despite Republican, you know, saying this is the problem. So is our industry incapable of rapid change? Is it incapable of rising to the crisis? The most minimal high-performance siding doors aren't made in the U.S., they're made by a Swiss company. It produces eloquent, and then, you know, he goes through one kind of product after another. Who makes the highest-performing windows? As a passive house consultant, an advocate for over a decade, it is sad to report that they are also not found here. They are manufactured in Germany, which are notorious for conservative industries that are adopting increasingly stringent energy codes. This is because the regulations are being made by political parties that actually care. Or they're led by people who care about the environment, at least somewhat nominally. Because there's a Green Party in Germany. And they're part of the coalition. So, um, let's see. Even regions where the industry is less conservative are producing passive house windows that outperform anything made in the U.S. China is absolutely overtaking us in the high-performance window department. 110 certified frames listed on the Passive House Institute uh, component database to the U.S.'s 10. Now, just for context, a passive house is a kind of house where uh, it's so energy efficient that it uh, is basically carbon neutral or energy neutral. It just doesn't need a lot of power to heat or cool. Probably none at all is the goal. And that's what great great products mean. You don't, you don't actually need energy. Solar power does all the work. How about insulated concrete? A product that was invented in the U.S., but has been perfected by German-speaking nations. Innovative concepts like prefab, robotically tampered, rammed earth walls, 
are possible in Austria, but not here. You can even add insulation to it. But when it comes to thermally broken components, Germany has been the industry leader on a lot of this, pushed by regulation. So in this case, it's not that like regulation's bad. It's that Germany and other countries have the right kind of regulations the regul that regulate things to be of quality and cost effectiveness. Meanwhile, here in America, our regulations ensure, to be blunt, racial segregation or class segregation, as the case may be. There are virtually no jurisdiction in the U.S. where the building code would allow a seven-story building uh, served by a single means of egress. That means, you know, housing costs in America are higher because, like, we require more fire stairs. I guess it makes us a little safer as far as fire goes. But the fact that, like, no matter how small the building is, you still need two. Or you need two for every... You need one for every, like, 30 feet that you'd have to walk to get to them. Now, uh, this also includes mass timber hybrid buildings. Uh, it goes on about that. Uh, speaking of innovation of mass timber... An uh, an eight-floor prefab mass timber demonstration project in Dorobin, Austria, also has a single stair, is now nearly a decade old. They recently expanded their relationship in the U.S., raising the question of whether this is how we will start to see innovation in construction. It's got to come from outside America. Yes, mass timber is popular in the U.S., but it has been a thing in the European Union for over 20 years. Guess where most of the CLT machines are made? Germany, he means. CLT machines are things that make uh, the wood products that you can actually use uh, structurally to make, like, wood products that are as strong as I-beams. And when it comes to housing, the situation is just as gloomy. A dense, architect-led, family-friendly, community-oriented, low-energy social housing is virtually non-existent in the U.S. Good luck even finding a multifamily development here that is not primarily a studio or one-bedroom unit. You will, however, find them in Vienna, Italy, and Berlin. In Amsterdam, a group of architects have developed a manifesto that is informed, stunning, flexible, architect-led urban development, the true urbanist. So you could say there's a European urbanism that's actually far superior to the American-style urbanism, which is a bunch of uh, squabbling online uh, free, um, pedantics, dilettantes. Maybe that's the word I want. Where in the U.S. can an architect develop a six-story urban building using prefab, standardized concrete parts? Where are the zoning and financing options that would enable this? Or a concrete plant that manufactures them? They don't exist. In Berlin, this is already a reality. Now, I could point to numerous undertakings in the EU spotlighting innovation. Um, so let's see. Let's go forward. Do not get me started on eco-districts. I spoke to a colleague recently who has been trying to work on them directly and indirectly for years. They had little hope of any sort of uptake of them in the U.S. Our zoning codes do not foster them. Neither do our financing structures. Wink, wink, private banking sector, wink. Perhaps most importantly, there are no, virtually no incentives for them, and we have no political leadership on the issue. Meanwhile, I could point to a hundred or so car-light developments underway in the EU, various scales, with ample social housing, people-oriented streets, open space, amenities, the works. Perhaps a large part of the problem is that in the U.S., an industry-connected nonprofit is writing building and energy codes instead of the government. Also, due to the disjointed nature of our jurisdictions, even our strongest energy codes are still a decade behind the EU, any and all 
zero energy building requirements. Wrapping up here, um, there's more here, but I'm skipping. Thus far, there is so little movement resolving these problems in the U.S. It is both unnerving and unreal. Since coming back from working in Germany, the disparity I see between our industry and the EU has only grown. I should not have to look to European manufacturers to obtain the most efficient and innovative products, yet that is our present reality. I have so much angst about this, about our systemic inability to do anything about these issues. So are a country pretending the status quo is adequate when we need massive systemic change. There's so little time and so much to do. So on that note, I will wrap up the show. <laughs> My profound thanks for listening, if you did indeed listen to the program. It's a skill as important as talking. So I plan to listen to any constructive feedback, ideas for the show, stories and topics you'd like to hear discussed, and send us via social media on Facebook, Twitter, at 3 Lefts. You can also, I also have an email, 3 Lefts Show at Gmail. Now, this program is made in part as, a, as part of a community, as an independent community radio station, which can be supported materially via membership at uh, grandarts.org. Or you can materially directly support me via Patreon and LibrePay. This episode and the last 10 are broadcast on most podcasting apps, but a full archive of the podcast, all 126 episodes, along with uh, show notes, uh, sources, can be found at 3less.news. I also include all of the sources or types of websites I go to for my articles. Of course, the most important thing is to put the ideas, the policy, and the thinking, and the projects talked about here in practice for yourself. Write to a letter to the editor, even. So be well, keep it rad, and keep waving the flags of the three laughs. <laughs>